If you open your Bibles, Matthew chapter number 17. Matthew chapter 17. Hey, Michael, can you throw that water bottle in front of you up here? Are you just, oh, you got, okay, there we go. All right, there you go. Not a great spiral, but it's okay. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. If you're a guest with us today, we're glad that you're here. Um, we hope that on the way in, you received a warm welcome. You should have received also what we call our Connect card, as well as a little book that's called We Want You Here. That talks about how a church can come alongside you in your journey of faith and help you to continue to get to know Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, to introduce you to him. And so we hope that you'll take advantage of those resources. Matthew chapter number 17. And as we get into this uh, passage, what I want to look at, and really there's a theme that's kind of coming up, um, and we began pressing into it a couple of weeks ago, but this is a major theme in the book of Matthew. Um, and the theme is kind of what I've entitled the message today. First the suffering, then the glory. First the suffering, then the glory. And we'll get to exactly what that means here in just a couple of moments. One of my favorite questions to hear from my kids and one of my favorite questions to ask when I was a kid was this, hey, dad, what are you doing? If you've had children or uh, how many of you, you've, you either have, chi have children or you were a child. All right, good, most of us, excellent, awesome. Um, so we've had those moments where we, hey, dad, hey, mom, what are you doing? And kids are so inquisitive, so curious. I can remember walking out into the garage, and maybe you can too, and seeing your dad working on something um, in the car. And so you can say, dad, what are you doing? Maybe you go out into the backyard and you see mom tending the garden, pulling weeds and uh, working on uh, making sure that all of the plants were growing in the way that they ought to. And so that question again comes up, what are you doing? Curiosity and wonder just fill the hearts and the minds of children. It's such a wonderful thing to watch. Um, and as a kid, we don't understand the things that are happening, but we want to. There's a part of us that are drawn towards that gaining of knowledge and gaining of understanding. And what a beautiful thing it is to watch kids as they develop and as they grow and watch that curiosity. It just begins with that, what are you doing? As we get older, that what are you doing kind of tends to transition to what were they thinking? <laughs> We've really asked that question a little bit more often. Um, just this morning, if you uh, didn't notice, um, it's foggy outside. I don't know if you picked up on that or not. Um, and so we were driving in this morning, and my girls were asking all kinds of questions about the fog and where does fog come from and why does fog exist? And, um, you know, to be honest, questions that I was just kind of like, okay, I don't know a whole lot about this subject, and so I'm just telling what little information I do know. And as we were going, they were asking questions like, what, uh, how do you see other cars when they're coming? And so I, I gave the answer. Cars are supposed to have their headlights on, right? When you're driving in fog, you turn your headlights on, so you can see each other and they can see you. And so we turn our headlights on. The words don't even come out of my mouth. And a car is coming in the other lane, going over the speed limit with no headlights on. <laughs> Anybody else experienced something like that this morning? And you just, what were they thinking? <laughs> what were they thinking? Um, with kids, often we express these things. Uh, maybe you've been at a playground. And um, the kids, if they're young enough, they, they think the mulch is the Midwestern equivalent of a sandbox. And so they begin to gather the mulch together, and they begin to make their little castles out of wood chips. And then they pick them up over their head, and then they drop. And you're just going, why would you do that? 
They come over you and they've got dirt in their eyes and they did it to themselves. What were you thinking? Uh, or maybe um, you leave them alone at the dinner table for just a couple of moments. Um, and then you return to the room to see cups turned upside down above their plates as all the food that was supposed to be dry is now getting soggy and waterlogged. Uh, what, what were you thinking? And then they tell you that they don't want to eat that anymore because it's yucky. Well, no, duh. Obviously. I can't, and let's just be honest, I can't explain, and you probably can't either, the fascination that some children have with crayons and walls. It's like a giant canvas. I've never had a piece of paper this big before, and so now I have to do whatever I can do within arm's reach. And so we just walk into the room, and immediately, what were you thinking? As we look at this passage, what we're going to find is we're going to find a contrast between the wisdom of God and our own impulsivity. Um, I know none of you are impulsive people. None of you. Um, oftentimes when we do the things that we look back on and we say, what was I thinking? It's due to that, just that impulsive nature. We want to react and we want to respond. And what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 17 is we're going to see uh, the way that Jesus goes about and responds in the way that Peter responds to what Jesus is doing. And so we're going to compare and we're going to contrast a little bit of these things that happen as Jesus does one of the most incredible things, in my opinion, that he did in his time on this earth. So let's begin looking at chapter 17 and verse number one. I just want to read the first verse and then look into this for just a minute. It says this, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And so this is a fascinating thing that's going on here, right? Um, Matthew doesn't often give a transition that's quite like this one. When we read through Matthew, what we see is after a time or after a little while or and then Jesus. But at the beginning of chapter 17, what do we see? We see the phrase after six days. So this is very specific. So there's a specific amount of time. Six days after what? Ought to be kind of our question. What happened six days before? Well, six days before, we see chapter number 16. Beginning in verse 21, the Bible teaches us that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter responds here impulsively because that's what he does. And he gets up and he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. And then Jesus goes on and he says, take up your cross, follow after me. And so we see in these verses six days later, and can you imagine your follower of Jesus, and they've been following Jesus um, for likely coming up on a couple of years now, following after Jesus, spending day by day, spending time with him. So just picture all of this that's taking place. Spending time with Jesus day after day. And then Jesus comes and Jesus says, oh, by the way, we're going to go to Jerusalem, um, you know, which is a normal thing. We go to Jerusalem at least once a year, if not more often. But uh, when we go to Jerusalem, this time it's going to be a little different because I'm going to be uh, arrested and killed. So there's that. Just give me a heads up. 
wait, what? And then for six days of this, they're, they're, they're stewing, and they're worrying, and they're wondering, and they're curious about it. Have you ever had that thing that's just on your mind? You know that that test is coming up. Um, or you know that performance review at work is coming up, and you're just, for a few days, maybe you know the boss is going to be in the regional, not the local boss, the regional boss. He's going to be coming in. He's going to be inspecting, and, and they want to see what's going on. And so, man, those days ahead of it just kind of feels like there's a weight on you. And so all of this is kind of taking place. There's this week of just wrestling with these truths. And so if you can imagine as we begin this chapter, the hearts of the disciples are heavy. For six days, they've been aware that the Messiah is going to be crucified, that he is going to die before any of the glory that they thought was going to take place would take place. Because what do they think the Messiah is? Well, what do so many people in this day and age that the scripture was written believe about the Messiah, who Jesus was? They thought this Messiah would come in and that he would conquer and he would lay down the law and he would do these things. And the Romans, we got rid of those guys. The Messiah came in and brought us victory. But was that the kind of Messiah that Jesus was introducing to the world at this time? No. No. This is a totally different Messiah. Uh, and we're going to see some of that. And that's going to impart lends itself to what we call the messianic secret. Because even in this time, as Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples, what does he say? He says, don't tell anyone. And even as he says these things, I believe it's likely that it was because people had a misunderstanding of who the Messiah was. If Peter and James and John go out and start saying, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. Everyone's trying to crown him and they're trying to, oh, he's going to be the one that overthrows Rome. But that's not what he came to do, as we're going to see. And so let's continue reading here through verse number three. And so we see that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. And so these three men are led up with Jesus to a high mountain by themselves. And so normally Jesus is traveling with 12 of his apostles, his disciples. Now he takes just these three. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And so wait a second, what's going on here? All of a sudden, verse number two, he was transfigured, his face began to shine like the sun, his clothes became white as light, and then they look, and there are Moses and Elijah. And I wonder how they identified Moses and Elijah. Uh, we don't know. We don't understand. You have to remember, this is a day and age where there aren't pictures. So it's not like you've seen pictures of Moses and Elijah hanging up. Oh, yeah, I recognize that guy. These are two men that have been gone for uh, centuries. Um, they had been no longer on the scene for a long period of time. And in the case of Moses, millennia. And so these are men that were ancient even by their standards. Uh, this would be like uh, one of the apostles showing up here today, uh, or like uh, one of the founding fathers walking into the room today. These are people that have been dead and gone and buried for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Well, in the case of these two men, it's actually something really kind of uh, fascinating that's going on with these two men. Moses being the first of these that had lived, Moses was known as the lawgiver. 
Moses was the man that God had used to communicate the laws of Israel to the people. And so these tablets of stone, God recorded the law on and then gave them to Moses and Moses gave them to the people. And all of these things began to take place. And as the nation of Israel was rescued out of slavery in Egypt, Moses was the leader that they looked to for that deliverance. In the New Testament, as Jesus and others refer back to the Old Testament, one of the words that they often use to describe it is the law. And the law was really summed up in a person of Moses. Moses was the law giver is what they, one of the titles that they gave to him. We know that God's the one who gave the law, but Moses was the human instrument whereby this law was received. And so we see this lawgiver of Moses who now is making himself known and he's there and he's visible. And one of the amazing things about Moses is that as Moses died, Moses was not able to enter into the promised land that he had been leading the people toward. But as Moses died, a really significant thing happens as he's buried. You see, there wasn't a big burial for Moses among the people of Israel. But what took place? God himself took the body of Moses and buried it where no one knew. So something really significant, really interesting happens, really unique happens with Moses. And then the other man that appears here is a man by the name of Elijah. Elijah. Elijah served as what the Bible calls a prophet of God. And so Elijah was one that when the scripture, uh, when God had spoken to, this is before the scripture was completed, when God was wanting to speak to the people of Israel, he would call a prophet. And one of those prophets was this man by the name of Elijah. And even at the end of Elijah's life, the Bible teaches us that Elijah didn't face death the way that you and I face death. But Elijah was taken up. Uh, he was taken up by God. And so this really interesting, again, thing that takes place around the death of this man, Elijah. And really what we see, I believe, as we look at this passage, and we see why these two men. Because if we look at the history of Israel, God could have chosen any number of people to be the people that he revealed to these disciples, right? Why Moses and Elijah? You know, as I was reading through this this week, I was kind of pondering this question. Why not David? I mean, David's pretty cool, right? Face Goliath, king of Israel. Why not Solomon, wisest man who ever lived? Why not Samuel, the last of the judges, the greatest of the judges? Why not Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel? Why not any of these guys? Why Elijah and why Moses? Uh, I want you to follow me here. I want you to get this. The law and the prophets prepared the way for Jesus. The law and the prophets prepared the way for Jesus. So why these two? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, if you're going to sum up the, the law in a person, a human being, Moses is the one that we connect the law with. And then when we look at the ministry of the prophets, the people who would speak God's word, even in difficult days, those prophets were uh, the, the greatest of those over and over and over again among the people of Israel was Elijah. And so here we see the law and we see the prophets giving affirmation to who Jesus is. And so these two men now are appearing before um, Peter and James and John, and they're here, and what's going on? They are, verse number three, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And so they're talking, they're communicating, they're speaking with Jesus. 
What an incredible thing to behold. And watch what happens all of a sudden, verse number four. Peter said to Jesus, because of course he did, right? Would it even be a story of Jesus and his followers if Peter didn't have to open up his mouth? So Peter, of course, being Peter, gets up and says, Lord, it's good that we are here. It's a weird place to start. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And so what is Peter all of a sudden, what is he saying? What is he wanting to do? Peter wants to remember what's taking place here. He says, hey, Jesus, you just say the word, and I'm going to build a memorial to this thing. So now anyone that comes up to this part of the mountain, they're going to see, oh, this is the place where Jesus revealed himself, and he had Moses with him, and he had Elijah with him, and they can just come up here, and they can go, wow, look, this is the place that Jesus shone with the great glory of God. Wow, check this out. And so this is kind of what's taking place here. And Peter opens up his mouth, he jumps in this, and, and he says, Jesus, just give me permission. This is what I want to do, and if you'll let me do it, this is what I want to happen. But you know the question that uh, Peter didn't ask is, God, why are you doing this right now? He said, God, I want to just act on this. He didn't stop and say, God, why are you, why this, why now? See, oftentimes, I believe this is very true of us. We fail to ask what God wants us to do, and instead we say, what do I want to do? Man, don't we do that sometimes? I think all of us are in this boat, right? If you say, no, I never do that, um, you're a liar. <laughs> Just say it as it is. We've all faced that. We don't even take the time to consider, God, what would you have me to do in this situation? We say, what do I want? And we take and we impose our own desires over God's. And so Peter here in the middle of all of this, as, as God is doing a work and as God is revealing something to Peter, James, and John, because let's remember, they were invited for a reason. If God didn't want them there, they wouldn't have been there. There were many times that Jesus went off to a place alone. We don't know what happened in those times, but now here we see Peter, we see James, we see John are invited with Jesus to come and to behold this thing that's taking place. So God wanted them there, but instead of waiting and being patient for God to reveal himself in the middle of it, these three jumped ahead, or Peter especially jumped ahead and says, oh, you know what we should do? We should memorialize this. Peter doesn't even know what he's memorializing. <laughs> Isn't that kind of funny? Peter doesn't even realize what he's doing here. He's just like, oh, let's jump in with both feet. And so what takes place? What's going here? What's going on here? What had Peter just been marinating in for six days? What was the thing that Jesus had just revealed to Peter and to the rest of the apostles? He was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer. What does Peter say when the suffering is promised? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, Jesus, no, 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 no. That's not how it's going to be. Then all of a sudden, when the glory comes, when Jesus reveals himself and says, hey, look, here I am, oh, what does Peter say now? Oh, let's remember this forever. Let's embrace that. But isn't that you and me? Isn't that us? You see, our human nature prefers glory to the cross. Our human nature prefers glory to the cross. 
We want to look, we want to say, oh, God, glorify. God, do this thing. God, work in this way that just is so cool and magnificent and do this thing. And if you do this thing for me, then I'm going to follow after you or I'll do this thing for you if you do this thing for me. Oh, God, reveal yourself. Make yourself bright and big and known. And there are times that God does those things, right? We're, we're reading about one of them. But what we see is that Peter, who is so quick to uh, push off the suffering that's promised, is very slow to embrace. Uh, is very slow to embrace that suffering, but very quick to embrace the glory. He's very quick to latch onto the thing and say, ah, oh, the good times. Wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Let's sit in this moment. But that wasn't a moment that God was intending for him to last long in, was it? That wasn't a time where he was saying, okay, let's just camp here for a while. Let's spend a few days with Moses and with Elijah. That wasn't what was happening. And even as, watch this. Because Peter just jumps in and, and just uh, play this out in your head. Yeah, I think this is, I get probably too amused by this. Watch verse number five. He, being Peter, was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And so imagine that fog that we all drove in in this morning, only now it's lit up, right? And what does it say? While he was still speaking, bright cloud overshadowed, a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so in the middle of this, Peter is like, oh, wow, let's build these tabernacles and we'll put a tabernacle over here. We'll build a tent over here for Moses and we'll build a tent over here for Elijah. And then Jesus, of course, you will. And even before the words get out of his mouth, this light turns on, and this voice comes and says, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Listen to him and the thing he's got to say. And so Peter doesn't even get the words out of his mouth, and he's just, Okay, I'm shutting up. <laughs> okay, all right, I get it. Incredible, isn't it? All these things just begin to take place. And so we see that this human nature prefers glory to the cross. But even in the middle of all of this, Jesus understood that true glory would only come after the cross. First the suffering, then the glory. See, in God's economy, there is no glory without suffering. There's no glory without hardships. You can't separate those two things. We can't say, oh, all I want is the mountaintops. You see, mountaintops come with valleys attached. There's no way around it. Even for, in order for there to be a mountaintop, there has to be something that is a lower elevation or there's no such thing as a mountaintop, right? And so what's going on here? The disciples, they just want to jump on and say, let's go with the glory. But God says, hey, listen, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased. Listen to what? He is saying. Verse number six. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And so um, I think that's a natural response. <laughs> a voice from heaven shows up. The area around you is illuminated. Natural response. Fall on your face. Be afraid. Be afraid. 
I love this because the voice from God just said what? The last thing they said was this. The last thing he said was, listen to him, right? And what's the first thing out of Jesus' mouth in verse 7? Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. See, when I was reading through this phrase, I read through that phrase, I mean, probably dozens of times just sat there looking, rise, have no fear. Rise, have no fear. Rise, have no fear. It's incredible. This, this is the first words out of Jesus' mouth after God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, surely he meant a broad range of things, all the teachings that he's giving, the things that he's telling them. Absolutely, I believe that here God is saying, follow the things he has to say. But I think it's significant that the first words out of Jesus' mouth, as soon as God says, listen to him, is this, rise, have no fear. Because what was coming in the days ahead for the disciples? What emotion were they about to be experiencing a lot of? Fear, right? Because Jesus, their leader, was about to be taken to the cross and crucified. And if the guy you followed and believed was the Messiah and were willing to risk everything for gets executed by the governmental authorities, how are you feeling? Afraid, hopefully. <laughs> Afraid if you're smart. Now Jesus comes and he says, rise, have no fear. Why could Jesus get up and utter those words? Or why could Jesus come to them and say, hey, don't have any fear? Who were they looking at? When they looked up, what do they see? They see no one but Jesus only. See, in the days ahead, who did they have to cling on to? Who did they have to trust in, to rely on, to depend on? I think it would be very safe to say that the answer there was Jesus only. <laughs> How do we face fearful days? Jesus only. Jesus only. How do we endure the cross? How do we go about actually enduring the suffering that God says is going to come our way? How do we walk through those difficult days? How do we go through knowing that the cross is coming and suffering is going to be coming and it's going to be on our doorsteps? How do we endure those times? Jesus only. Jesus only. Remember what uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter number 5? Uh, he promises in the Sermon on the Mount, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter number 5. He goes through what's called the Beatitudes. And one of those that he says, he says, blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do we go through and endure persecution, even when it's persecution for doing good? How do we, how do we walk through those days? Jesus only. Jesus only. You know what? The suffering and the hardships and the trials that you endure may not pay off in this lifetime. You may never see a resolution to them here. So then how do we walk through? Jesus only. See, Jesus knew and understood that true glory would only come after the cross. And even after the cross, before they realized that he had come again, he was risen again, he was their only hope. They were afraid. They didn't see that. They didn't understand that. But the moment that he appeared to them, the moment that he showed himself to them that he was alive, wait a second, that changes everything. 
Now now a light bulb comes on in their minds and they get that he is the one that allows them to rise and to not be afraid any longer. Watch with me, verse number nine. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them. So once again, this is, I believe, the third time in the book of Matthew, he says this, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Don't tell anybody. And as he says this to them, I think it's a fascinating uh, exchange right here. Verse 10, the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And so, wait a second, Jesus, we're not supposed to tell anybody, but the scribes, they're going around, they're teaching, and they're telling people that Elijah has to come before the Messiah. So if Jesus is the Messiah, and now we've seen Elijah so now we can say, well, Elijah did come, right? This is, what, this is what you meant. This is what the scriptures meant. And so now we can go and we can tell everybody Elijah came. So why don't you want us to tell people? Because now they'll accept you. They'll believe that you are this Messiah. And he answered, Elijah does come and will restore all things. Uh, but I tell you, verse 12, that Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And and so wait a second. They just saw Elijah. Uh, Did Elijah, did they watch Elijah suffer anything? Did they watch Elijah endure anything? He was just there on the mountain with them, and it was just for a short period of time. But I think if something like that had happened, they would have probably like said something, right? So wait a second, Jesus, what are you talking about? Watch. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Wait a second. Hold on a minute. You're telling me, these disciples are asking, you're telling me that this promise was already taken care of and we didn't even realize that this promise was fulfilled? You see, as they were looking around for Elijah, they were totally missing what was actually happening right in front of their faces. And I want you to catch this with me. God is working even when we don't see it. God is working even when we don't see it. And I might even go as far as to say God is working especially when we don't see it. Oftentimes, we want to be able to know, God, you're doing something. I can see how you're playing out and how it's going from point A to point B to point C, and I see how you're doing this thing. If that's how you think God works, can I just kind of like burst this bubble really quick? It's not. When God is doing his best work, you probably either have no idea or you're very confused about how he is doing it. That's often when God does his best work. It's a time where we look around and say, God, where are you right now? God, what are you doing? And so even as John the Baptist came, God was keeping and fulfilling his promise that one, after the spirit of Elijah, that a new Elijah would come and would be a prophet and would teach the people and preach the good news of the kingdom and call those to repentance. And so God is doing these things through John, but these disciples totally missed it. They totally missed it because they're looking around and they say, God, where was Elijah for all of this? 
God, where was he? Because he was supposed to come and he was supposed to reveal himself to us. The scribes, they're sitting around saying that you can't be the Messiah because Elijah had to come and then it dawns on them. Oh, Elijah has come already. And they understand it finally to be John the Baptist, the one who had come and the one who had gone before the Messiah. Even as we look at these things taking place, it's easy for us to be transfixed on the the magnitude of the glory that Jesus demonstrated on this mountain. And certainly, I believe that we should. We should look at this Mount of Transfiguration, as it's often called, and we should look and we should say, God, wow, you demonstrated who you were. You revealed your glory placed on Jesus. Wow, what a day. Wow, what an event. And we ought to look at that and we ought to worship and we ought to say, God, that's an incredible thing because it is. But at the end of the day, you know why I believe God allowed them to see these things? Because he says, hey, listen, you need an anchor for what's coming next. Immediately after, what does he say? He says, hey, remember, this whole story's bookended. I'm going to suffer and die with I'm going to suffer and die and be raised again. So right here in the middle, there's this demonstration that these three are able to hang on to because the difficult days are coming. The hard days are coming. The days are coming when they want to be fearful. They want to be anxious. They want to be scared, and they want to run away from the problems that they're facing. But he says, hey, listen, don't have any fear. Don't have any fear. Rise, have no fear. And when we get up and we have no fear, who's the one that gives us the ability to go on fearlessly? Jesus only. There's no one else that you can look to. There's no one else that's able to withstand. Listen, people are going to disappoint you and let you down. People are going to fail you. Your job is going to let you down. The economy, hey, listen, there have been plenty of people who have trusted in the economy to do its thing, and how has that worked out? For many, not so well, right? We depend on all these different status and external things, but they don't satisfy. You know who does? Jesus only. Jesus only. He's the one that we have hope in. He's the one that we have life in. He's the one that gives us this joy and gives us the ability to persevere even in the darkest day. We love it when God reveals himself. We want him to shine, to do this thing that's just going to leave us in awe and say, God, obviously you were working and I had no way to, uh, to look around that and to avoid that. But then when uh, we ask him to step back into the box, uh, we've been keeping him inside and we say, God, listen, suffering, if that's the way that you have for me, I'm going to take a different route. But difficult days are going to come. And here's what I want you to grasp, if nothing else. Here's what I want you to grasp this morning. God's plans are always better than yours. God's plans are always better than yours. Think with me about the story that we just read. Peter and James and John, they're watching Jesus transfigured, and they're like, Jesus, if you would just show this to all of Israel, they'd believe. 
It would turn to you, Jesus, oh, you're the Messiah. Can't you just come in with a sword? And can't you just come in and, and bring your glory and establish your kingdom? Lord, isn't this the thing that you have wanted to do? And the thing, this is what we've been waiting for. But understand that there's no gospel in that. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. Because you see, while you and I are sinful, we have done wrong, we have gone against God, we have behaved faithlessly. He is faithful and just. And if we will put our faith in Jesus Christ alone, he'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful promise this is found in the Word of God. But as we look to Jesus as we see the way that he's working, I don't think if any of us were there in the first century as this is playing out, we would have looked at the cross and been like, yeah, that's a great plan, God. No. No. The disciples didn't do that. Why would we? The followers of Jesus in the first century, the crowds, they didn't think it was a good idea. Why would we get that impression? And yet here we find ourselves today, many of us in this room have a profession of that same faith in Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing. But we understand that the profession of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ only comes on the other side of the cross. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. Without the cross, there is no salvation. Without the cross, there is no gospel. There is no reconciliation between us and God. It doesn't exist without the cross. And you see, if God is willing and if he understands uh, what's necessary for your salvation and for mine, and he says, I'm, I don't, listen, I'm not going to do it your way. We want to trust God for our salvation. And when it comes to the daily decisions of our life, we want to say, yeah, you know what? I could do it better. Really? Really? But isn't that us? Don't we all the time, we say, God, man, if only you would just answer this prayer the exact way that I want you to answer it. If only you would do, I got it. God, I, I got a 10-step plan for you to follow, and this is going to make my life great. Here it is. I would like to submit this to you. <laughs> really? How's that living by faith? How is that trusting in a God who knows more than we do? We take God and we want to transform him into our puppet to do things the way that we want him to do. And we want to say, God, jump. And we want God to say, how high? No. God works in ways that you and I don't understand, will not understand. And that's a good thing. Because at the end of the day, that's what gives us the gospel that we can put our faith in. The one that we can trust in. The way that we can be made whole.